was The Smiths with a track titled Stretch Out and Wait from the album The World Won't Listen. I'm David Eastall. This is The C86 Show. Welcome to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week, we have a special guest, just for a change. And this is going to be Jar Wobble, because I spoke to him a few weeks ago. I don't know, might have been months. Who knows? Who cares? Anyway, life's too short. So I've got that interview for you that I'm going to break up into about three easy-to-digest little segments throughout the show. But I think we should get the party rolling with your favourite and mine. This is Public Image and a track which is also titled Public Image Limited or something like that. Who knows? It's just details. Anyway, music.
<clears throat> that is Public Image Limited with the track titled Public Image that came out in 1978. Yes, you can do the maths. It was over 40 years ago. It makes you feel slightly old and peculiar. But anyway, this week's special guest is going to be Jar Wobble, who was playing bass on that very song. So there you go. And also, for those who are very excited, and if you're not listening to this months later, this is um, Jar Wobble is going to be in Norwich on the 8th of February at Epic Studios. So check it out, buy the tickets. And also, he's um, got a huge back catalogue that you'll find if you go to his website, just Google Jar Wobble, and it's all there. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show, bringing you the finest in indie pop. And this week's special guest, as you can gather, is going to be Joe Wobbles. So um, expect quality chat for the, um, for the rest of the show. No, not literally the rest of the show. I want to play you another song and then the first part of the interview. So there you go. This is going to be, oh, it's going to feature, excitingly, um, Sinead O'Connor. O'Connor. Yes, Sinead O'Connor. On vocals, this is uh, Joe Wobble and the Invaders of the Heart and the track titled Visions of You.
That is Jar Wobble and the Invaders of the Heart, and that's a track titled Visions of You that featured on vocals Sinead O'Connor. I was having a bit of a Proustian flashback and was thinking of Connaught Road. That's where I used to live. But anyway, that's just boring details. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And um, yes, if you ever want to contact me, we love your messages. Every one of them. Um, you can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show. And also I've um, podcast or yes, podcast the archive of the show. So you can find that on Spotify. Yes, indeed. iTunes and also on Yes, Mixcloud as well, so just check it out. It's all there. Just go to at C86show and you'll find them. Anyway, this is um, Jar Wobble Special because I caught up with him recently. And also, as I mentioned earlier, he is going to be in Norwich on the 8th of Feb. So if that's still to come, buy tickets. If it's gone, then just don't bother. This is going to be the first part of the interview where I was talking about his... um, fitness campaign or his kind of latest kind of fitness um, world which was exciting but I didn't include that in the interview but instead this is uh, the first part where we were talking about his amazing um, body of work not his physical body his musical body of work so this is it Jar take it away yeah I've just kept at it um, yeah I still love it I really love it it become I, I got slightly tired of running a label and everything that come with it as you will do um and i had that round about 2012 13-ish and i shaped up to sell the label which i did i was still working but just for a couple of years that i was doing lots of collaborations i thought well i can actually use this opportunity so i still kept on working you know so it's not like i've i've stopped i worked with judy campbell from lone lady and marconi union and keith levine again around that time you know um and then and then you know i've never never stopped playing gigs anyway or making recordings and and since then i've started another i sold my label and then started another label so yes. i've just got it's just yeah, it's just unbelievable i've just got too many albums i've got another three or four el- apart from the ones you've mentioned there's another three or four albums kind of just about ready to go Yes, well, I was looking on Spotify, and 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 your back catalogue is quite extraordinary. It's just, it's. All, I guess Spotify has just put virtually all your stuff up there. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually is a moot point because that's why because of streaming. You know, we'd had um, we lost sales obviously because of illegal downloading, and then streaming came along, and it's it it it, it I. I'm surprised that there's still a CD market because going back to about 2013, 14. A little bit earlier, 2011-12, I, I thought there probably wouldn't be a viable CD market by 2018, but there still is just about, you know, a viable CD market. And thank God, because the streaming, what you get digital, is absolute rubbish still. It's absolute rubbish. I mean, it's a, for me, it was a big con for yes. independent music uh, purveyors, independent music players, you know. I wondered why, naively at the time, why majors were sitting down not, just taking it and i realized of course i believe that a lot of the majors uh invested in companies like spotify and uh, and took licensing advances so of course they're fine thanks very much yes. but for everybody else you know we i mean I, we just started noticing our regular punters would say oh, i've got you new album on spotify now so i've heard it it's good you think oh great you know so you 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 know i'd say roughly that probably 
Um, and I, I don't think I'd be far wrong. Generally speaking, for an artist like myself, you know, streaming's probably three percent of your income from recorded music, roughly. Yes. You know, which is which is very which in the, this digital age is very poor. You know. Yeah. Um, but so, but hey, you know, there's ups, there's downs. You just keep on going, and I still love, I still love doing it. You know. Well it's, well, it's interesting because a few years ago there was, I mean, publishers were all worried or, or bookshops were worried that people weren't going to want to buy books. But I think people have come back to this. Actually, they want to own the object. They want to have something a bit more solid that they can identify with. So I think after a, a lot of people have I had exp- tried to have an experience without buying the object and have now gone back to wanting to buy it because there's, there's a connection with the artist, isn't there? Or the author or the musician or the band. So I think there is an important important aspect of ownership really yeah exactly so you know and i think i think there's enough collectors out there and it's just about it's kind of viable it's been viable for me it kind of picked up slightly i come back in the second win, but not not that i really i didn't take any time out i've just kept on making music and i still i enjoy it as much as i ever did i yes. still whoop and holler you know you know, I love being in the studio and, you know, um, you know, I still whoop and holler. Yes. I'm going back home and today I'm going to get the iPad out and work on some stuff, you know, because it, and that's where the, te- it's, the technological age isn't all bad. No. You know, it's a shame that all, this, mate, all these studios, are, they're just the ones that are clinging on are dying off, it seems. I know one, one exception, actually, in the studio that's going well in Manchester that I use Um you know, and I've got a little, I've got a little creative space in, right in Manchester, which I'm going to go. To. I'm going to drop, just drop in home first, actually, but I'm going to go there, and I'm going to do some stuff. You know, with the iPad. Figures you can kind of work anywhere now, but this is I love the new technology. I could, as long as I can cut, I can cut and paste and arrange it. It's incredible, you know, for me. So, yes. you know, I, I sit there at home even with the iPad. Yesterday, I didn't go into my studio because it's like, oh, it's a nice. The dog's on my lap. I don't want to move it. Him. I've got a mug of tea. This is fantastic, you know. I can sit here and, you know. And so, yeah, I've got a ton. I've got like an electro dub album. Um, I've got a Chinese, another, a sequel to Chinese dub, you know, which I've done with my family all play. My son, John, the Chinese called him Tai Tai. He's, um, He's a very good drummer. He plays Western kit and Chinese kit. He plays Yantin and something. We always do stuff for Chinese New Year, you know, yeah. as well. Um, we, we do stuff for, for these projections that take place in Liverpool. So, um, yeah, we've got, we've got a ton of stuff going on at the moment, you know. Um, it's fantastic, you know. So, yeah, just all, all, all you know, sort of Pat McWife. The other boy, Charlie, he's got he's got a little record deal, and he's he plays Chinese traditional kind of music as well with Erhu. So it's a very he, he's always in. I've got a little studio at home, little studio space, and he's in there more than me when he's home. You know, he's back he's back home now for Christmas, and he's in he's straight in there every day. I've got some nice, I, you know, I, I, it's been a very exciting couple of years because I've pared down. I had. At a certain way of working, I use digital workstations and sequences all midded up and had certain kinds of keyboards. And I just stripped everything a couple of years ago and started from scratch um, using touchscreen technology with the iPads. And uh, I've got a load of different keyboard configurations and stuff and um, lots of old synth, uh, analog synths and stuff, you know. And um, so I was, you know, very inspired and you got to keep, 
turning the wheel. Yes, yeah, so, absolutely. You know, well, it was yeah. interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I did an interview with Barry Adamson, who's just... Oh, not a good guy. Good guy. Yes, and, and he's just brought out a compilation of his uh, material, which I think was, again, a bit boggling, because he obviously was in... Ma- magazine and various other bands which mm. I'm now going to go blank on but oh, well, he's Nick, a very Nick, good good Nick, composer and he plays Ovation Magnum yes and Nag- oh, yes plays. and it was Nick Cave wasn't it? and the bad seas anyway so he's put his piece together but he was talking about the very early years of being a bass player where he didn't you know it wasn't an instrument that he really sort of came to automatically he just kind of had um yes the, the sort of a three string bass to start it so what was your sort of musical journey in the world of the bass um, oh, well, I love um, the first music I bought was Jim Reeves, actually. Welcome to my world. My mum used to buy me a single every week, and um, Jim Reeves was the first one. Um, but then, not long after that, came the rise of Bluebeat, as we called it, or Scar, it's also called. And um, you actually, it was the first stirring to be able to hear the bass. You know, you had some quite bottom end kind of bass starting so and it was very much a it wasn't just the phrasing it was a physical physicality of bass and within a few years I went to my first blues dances you know Jamaican kind of sound systems in the bottom of dilapidated old Georgian houses in uh, in Hackney yes. and uh, that really became you know just like it was definitely not a musical instrument to me. It was like the sound of the cosmos or something, you know. Okay, then. Because I know with... Because the other bass player that I loved was... Um, but there's, there's a lot. But there was Lemmy from Motorhead, who I think was more of a rhythm guitarist back in the day. And well, I, he sort of... I used, to, I used to go and see Hawkwind back in the day, you know. So, you know... Um, so he was, he was, he was somebody. I'd see Lemmy around a lot, you know, yes. in those days. And he had a very distinctive kind of sound and a different uh, style of playing because obviously he'd come from a rhythm guitar sort of background, hadn't he? Yeah, it was pretty, yeah, yeah very rocky, as I recall. The British produced very good bass players. I mean, um, Ronnie Lane um, is a great bass player. Paul McCartney, obviously, Glenn Matlock, uh, Jack Bruce. You know, they're very imaginative. British rock players who managed to follow the chords, yes, but in a very in a very interesting way. So they tend to be subservient, as you have to be if you were if you're working with kind of pop rock kind of music. But they'd make it interesting. They wouldn't just pedal the root note of the uh, of the bass. I mean, Lemmy probably did, but with such a attitude, it was fantastic. And that is the first part of my interview with Jar Wobble. More to come. It's all very exciting. But um, I think we'll play a little bit more music to um, keep the party rolling. This comes from, this particular track comes from their 1982 album, which is titled um, Full Circle. And this is the opening track, How Much Are They?
Delightful from start to finish. That was a jar of wobble with a track titled How Much Are They? Taken from his 1982 album Full Circle. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And um, as I said earlier, and hopefully you are paying attention, if you want to uh, find any of the archive, you can via Spotify or iTunes Mixcloud. Just go to C86 show. They're all there. And a bit later, I'll give you, um, yes, contact details if you want to get in touch. But this is going to be the second part of my interview with Jar Wobble, where I'd been talking about Sly and Robbie as you did and um, especially in the 80s they used to do these massive concerts three four hour concerts called uh, Sly and Robbie the Taxi Gang and um, was just talking about their bass and rhythm section and this was Mr Wobble's reply Mr Wobble what was your reply Shakespeare's was such a utilitarian bass player fantastic I, I think a lot on one string which yes. I was I mean I still try and stay on one string as much as I can you know um, not all the time, but, you know, you try to. And, of course, Aston Family Man Barrett, he really was very musical, you know, um, you know, very musical um, 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 basis to his playing, you know. Yes. And then, and, not, and obviously, when you sort of got into your first band, a bit like with Barry Adamson was in sort of a magazine, and obviously things like that don't last long. You're in sort of public image for a certain amount of time. Did oh, you... I think they, I think they, I think they do last for a lot of people. They do, and I think that's for better and for worse. I mean, a lot of these bands stay together for years. They reform after years, and they don't really want to. They've, they've always got you in any band. Within a few years, you just get fed up with people, and they get fed up with you. I think anyway. I'm sure you know. Yes. Any, any, yeah, I'm sure that's happened with my own lineups. I think after a few years, you know. You, you, people tend to take the situation for granted, and you could take it for granted. You take people for granted, maybe, and you get like they're unhappy marriages. So thank God I didn't have to go through that. It was just, it was over and done with very quickly. I played on those first two fantastic albums, and that was it. And I think someone like Barry, I couldn't speak for him, but he's obviously I don't know what happened there with magazine, but he's. Um, you know, he's obviously a composer and he's a proper, he's a very interesting musician. I've never yes. met him, I don't think, but, no. I've, you know, I've always uh, complimented him. He seems a nice guy. Yes, yeah. well, absolutely. But um, what I found doing this in, this show is that there's this five-year narrative that I've sort of discovered. Like, you know, a band gets together, a random group of people or mates. Um, you know, they have two years making a sound. Then they get, you know, in the back in the day, you know, John Peel would play the single, which gave them that kind of moment. A John Peel session, the first album. So things were going well. Then it was often oh. the tricky second album. And if anybody ever tours America, that's often the moment that they come back and they just kind of go... I'm going to have to walk away because I might kill someone or I just can't stick <laughs> yeah, this yeah, anymore. Yeah. So did you did you sort of have, you know, those kind of patterns as well that, that happened, especially? Oh, uh, you know, within a, within months, it was terrible feeling in pill. You know, I mean, yeah, it's one of those, the money came, as money came in and money wasn't equally divided. It was badly managed. There wasn't a manager, you know, and it was, uh, you know, really poor decisions were made. And basically, you know, I had a sensible approach. Let's just keep making records and playing gigs. Let's get out and play gigs. But there was a resistance. There was, there was, there were drug problems within the band, as everybody knows. Some members of the band had, had major drug issues, obviously, which doesn't help. And money went AWOL. Um, supporting drug habits, obviously, you know, as well. So it was pretty messy. But, you know, I look back and just think, well, it was actually great the way it happened. And to be honest, by the time Metal Box, the other members of the key members of the band, I felt were, I realised both of them now actually were kind of, that was it. That was their, 
that was that was where they were going to stop. I think generally, for whatever reasons, creatively, and that they might. You know, John went on to do uh, a, a very good album with Bill Laswell, but it's a different kind of album. Bill's a great producer, you know. Um, he, he probably would have been wiser to kind of stuck with him, but I realised now, Metal Box, that was that was a kind of peak, and uh, it. I couldn't, it, it, I couldn't, it took me a long time to realize actually, you know what, I couldn't really creatively, it wouldn't have been good um, because they weren't really, you know, it wasn't, it wouldn't have gone on being creative. That had stopped actually by that time. And they were, they had other concerns really, I think at that time, you know, um, and I was, it was actually fantastic. I could leave, you know, very early on and went to work with Holger and Jackie from Cannes. Yeah. So youth, I remember seeing Youth and Kidding Joke. They were being produced by Connie Plank at the time, and Youth says, "Couldn't believe it. You left Pill, and then I saw you in Germany, thinking, my God, you know, it's just like, yeah, it weren't bad.' You know, I went straight to work with those two, and they did some solo stuff, and I crashed and burned myself anyway. You know, within a few years, um, you know, with 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 alcohol and drug abuse. You know, so it's not, you know, you can't ever really pin that stuff on other people. You put yourself in that situation ultimately one way or the other you know and um and so you know and then came kind of came back again you know but um it it was it's it's basically it's really good i didn't stay in a in a band i would have i think i would have found that very very uh frustrating especially a band where you know the people weren't going to be on a creative level you know anymore so that was it was just the right time for me to go really you and when know? you and when you look at people like we do now sort of like david bowen you sort of can look back at his career and think my god you did you did it kind of well even though you probably didn't completely have the narrative worked out at the beginning because you can't but realizing that there was a good time to say i'm gonna quit the band and and kill ziggy and do something else and I, you've I've obviously... never had, i'm very working class i mean a lot of the working class boys and girls that i've known not all by any bloody means you know but most you know don't really have a career path worked out certainly not of my age there wasn't that cynicism there was for the privately educated boys and girls that kind of tend to dominate british society you know certainly job-wise career-wise they have a kind of you know they're very ruthless and they have a kind of career path mapped out in advance it's often and it's all it's often just simply connecting with the right people and positioning oneself the working class boys and girls tend to just looks to have fun really and just do something make something and there's a spontaneity and there's a gen there's an authenticity actually often you know <clears throat> that's there that yes. the, the public school mob tend not to have don't get me wrong I've got very good friends who went to public school and we can speak honestly about these things so it's not it's not like an issue and they they, they tell me god you don't go to half of it you know and i realized they were very conditioned in the same way working class boys i knew went to prison with ballstall were very conditioned and very hardened, you know. So there's always a price to pay, but I never kind of worked anything out too no. much in advance, you know, um, and I still like that. I suppose you, you tend to kind of look, I guess, a few months ahead and see it really, you know. And you're always looking ahead to what's the next fun thing, what's the next fun record, yes. what's the thing that feels. So because of that, you t- it tends to be authentic, you know, it's quite real, really. You're not thinking, oh, I should make a record like that and that will pay me a that that'd be my pension, you know. It's too late for all that shit now anyway, you know, like trying to have a commercial success, you know. So you're better off just, hey, while well, you can get fantastic music out there, you know. 
Yes. Well, obviously, I mean, I think with Bowie, he came from quite a working class background. I think it was people like your prog rockers who are more... I think I'd say, I'd say probably lower middle. But remember, I come out of the East End of London and Bowie weren't out of there. Bowie was probably from like uh, so? lower middle class, but a good guy. I think he's a nice, yes. genuine guy. And I think he was, inc- you know, inspired tons of people. I mean, he really was in a way, you know, a leading light of the punk rock thing, no matter what anybody says, he was, yeah, he, not everything he did was great. But he was clever. I think he was, a, I think he was, maybe I didn't meet him, but I, he struck me as more of a nice person than a bad person. I think he aged well and he was smart, you yes. know, and he always reinvented himself as, you know, he was very kind of brave like that. And it was very, you know, Ziggy Stardust, he killed it off a bit too early which was actually perfect. And of course, it wasn't too early. It was great timing. And that is the second part of my interview with Jar Wobble. Um, lots more where that came from, I have to say. Um, yes. And um, as you can tell with all the interviews I do, um, I usually say the same things. I always mention David Bowie and Lemmy and also my five-year narrative theory about rock and roll and music. So there you go. They call me Mr. Predictable. But anyway, I think we should have some more music. This is going to be Public Image Limited and... And taken from the album Metal Box, career in. Take it away. Let's live 
Indeed, Public Image Limited with a track titled Career In from the album Metal Box that we all say we love and own. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Jar Wobble, Mr Wobble, as we became known to each other, um, where I was talking about um, working with creative but slightly tricky and high-maintenance people, to put it kindly. And um, this was Mr Wobble's reply. Jar, take it away. Well, most sing- well, most sing- most singers are bonkers, so let's get that straight. You know, um, you know, uh, <laughs> and most guitarists are unpleasant. There is the odd exception, you know, but they're off the people you need to kind of work with. So, I'm, so it's a very prejudiced point of view, of course. I'm the bass player. We're we, we're the sensible ones of the bands generally. You know, uh, the ones who go on to be great producers. But yeah, you, 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 it's difficult to have long term relationships with singers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, absolutely. Male, male, and, male and female, you know. They're the next big best thing to actors for being kind of fake and treacherous, I think, you know. I always remember hearing a member that was a Liverpool band called Big in Japan, which were one of those kind of strange collectives that featured people from, mm. you know, I don't know, Holly Johnson to members of Lightning Seeds and all that kind of Liverpool sound from the 70s. And mm. I think one of the members... Um, Jane Casey said that we we wore our neurosis on stage because they all kind of they'd all had a messed up childhood and they got into a band and for a very short period of time you know they did quite well and went on to do great things but it was that sense of kind of both being insecure and needy and needing to also be on stage which is a terrible combination really isn't it <laughs> yeah well I mean to be fair the singers they're often got that real narcissistic bent you know very self-centered but I guess you'd You've got to have that, maybe, you know, to get up, especially that era, and dominate, you know, a very boisterous crowds and be able to dominate them and 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 and, and uh, subdue them somehow and get them on your side, you know. Um, and I, I think in that way they're sometimes similar, similar to political orators who also have a rather narcissistic bent as well, you know. Um, so it's all kind of interesting. Yes. And it, it, you know, and, and yeah, hey, I mean, look, one thing I didn't say about Peel, you know, was, you know, how lucky I was to come into a band so raw and to my instrument to be able to lead, you know, I couldn't even count bars, actually, you know, um, when I came into Peel. So I was like this novice player. Um, who was able to really do their thing and was allowed to, you know, sort of, you know, lead the way, you know, which was, you know, I, I, imagine if I'd been in a band with a guitarist, you know, who was determined for me to follow their R chords, it, it might have been a different story. So I've been very lucky. I was very lucky with Public Image at the beginning that, you know, it, it kick-started me, you know, and I've been able to carry on working and pick and choose in a way I work with, really, you know. Well, it's interesting because actually there are some of the most iconic sort of bass lines in history. And I suppose there's John V with The Chain, isn't there? And then there's also Ace of Spades. We do a version of that. We we play that live. I'm not surprised because it is one of those ones that kind of make you, you know, your skin slightly like, oh, my God, it just, the hair stand up. Oh, well, we we bring it in in a really funny way. Um, (laughs) We segue out of a number and I do a little thing when is the last note the beginning and all this crap you know and 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 that and you hit that dun, so it, the last so it ends don't be to repeat this at the end of jar is that the chain and you can see it's about three cycles around like, yeah it's probably gonna do it you know excellent yeah. and when you um and you with this latest adventure with with bill laswell you were doing this as a, a pledge funding experience which obviously was successful do you sort of find that 
an enjoyable process doing pledge funding? Because I spoke to a member from The Beat and he was saying that it was a bit tricky because you suddenly feel very emotionally like, oh my God, we're going to have to really put this on and make a really good album, as you would anyway. Making a good, making a good album, that never, but I always fancied a job, you know, but you hope something untoward doesn't happen, you know, like someone gets really ill and then what do you do to complete the album or something, you know, that kind of thing, I guess, you know. Um but for me, it's always been, I'm sure Bill would say this, it's always, it was always about hustling the money to make the next record. And so now instead of going to some record company, you go directly with Pledge. And I don't need to do it every time, but for this time it was kind of made sense because you need to front money up to go to America, to stay at hotels. We did a couple of shows for fun and to warm up as well, you know. But the story of it was my band, the good lads, said to me, uh, because I've got all the work visas, we toured America a couple of years ago, I'll be going back because our visas will be running out. They're very expensive, the visas. Yes. And, um, you know, really expensive. And, uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll do that, you know. And it'd be great to sort of, you know, go and do skills. It'd be great to, you know, work with Bill. I said, oh, Bill would be up for it. I'll tell you that now. He'd do it. And they, and they said, what, why don't you do a pledge thing? I said, oh, yeah, never actually, never actually thought of that. Um, well, I've done it before with everything is nothing. Yeah, okay, let's do it, you know. So um, so that's it. I mean, there'll be a shortfall. There's not enough in the pot because especially with Brexit, because you're having to go to America and buy and, and, and pay for hotels and flights in pounds. So, you know, the budget was quite high anyway because you're there for a whole week. You're just doing a couple of shows if I bring a bit of money in. But, you know. You, it's a lot of money to shut out. So I'm, I'm, I'll be lucky to wash my face, as they say, with it in the long haul. But hey, it, it's it's about, you know, if that line with Ben Kingsley, we do it, we do it for the fuckness, don't we, gal? Don't we, gal? We do it for the for the for the, for the of it. And that's my, yeah, I'll just do it for the, let's make a great thing record, you know. And I've got a couple of the rough mixes, very rough mixes, and it's Peter Applebaum's paying on it, you know. And that was a buzz because. I didn't know he was the guy that wrote um, When the Rain Comes with Don Cherry. Okay, back to bass. I mean, look, I was in a, I didn't want to take my bass. It's the first time I never took it. I can't be bothered taking it to the airport when I'm that lazy. So um, I hired a Fender P, and the promoters both got me really good old vintage Fender P basses, right? So that's my backup. I had two, two, two fenders. That's normally I'd have one of them as a kind of backup and not use it. But I actually, had, I decided that I, yeah, I loved it so much. I didn't want to use a Magnum for the recordings. A, a guy bought one. I used it on one track, but I actually used a fender piece. The effect it had, it took me back to public image to the beginning because I used a fender piece when I played with Pilt. And I've used fender piece a couple of times in sessions since, but it was such a good fender piece. So it, it just reminded me of Peel. And so I started playing these very Peel-like basic B-lines again. And, um, you know, and it's a, it's really got something. I mean, it's a killer. Hideo Yamaki is playing on it, who's Tanisha He's uh, he played a lot of great Japanese back, records back in the day. He's on some of it. Um, and Peter Applebaum was on it. And that's these long notes. It's very cool. It's a really classy shivers up there. If anything, in a way, maybe a kind of a segue to the Radio Axiom uh, in dub, you know, with Nils Petter Mulvar that I've done with Bill in the early noughties. It's that kind of vibe, a bit Miles-ish, a bit Miles Davis-ish. You know? Yes. 
uh, very cool, you know, great playing my band. So that that's the story, you know, my band. It was down to my band wanted to, to to do it. I mean, the reason I'm doing Invaders of the Heart is because the band are uh, so enthusiastic, you know. Um, that I that just kept carrying on doing shows, you know. So that was it, you know. And that was the third part of my interview with Joe Wobble. Um, still quite a lot more to go, so I'll probably have to sort of edit it soon. But I think we'll play some more music. This is going to be Joe Wobble featuring Julie Campbell on vocals, and this is a track titled Tightrope. So far beneath And 
Well, that was very funky, and did we get excited by that, I can tell you. I had to sit down and at least have two puffs of Ventolin. Anyway, that was Jar Wobble and on vocals Julie Campbell with a track titled Type Rope. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Now, this is going to be some bonus content because uh, Let's Go Wild. This is a podcast now, so I can just throw off all the restraints of time. Now, this is the next part, which I'm going to let run a little bit longer. This is with me and Jar Wobble, where I'm, I was talking a bit about the live set and also about sort of having to pick a, a set list and because he's got such a phenomenal big back catalogue, if that caused any problems trying to work out what to play and what not to play. This was his reply. Jar, take it away. No, no, I mean, not really. Um, it, it kind of, the band is so good, to be honest, you know, in a couple of shows we did, we just improvised a whole half, half our sections recently. You don't do it every night. They're that good that I can say, right, 5-4, D, this the line, Mark, do a half-time thing, Chunky, do a thing like this uh, on stage. And then we do it, and I say, right, let's go to A. Okay, G, you know, they're that good, you know? And you can do a, like a let's do a dub thing in 5-4, and they'll, they'll do it, you know. And we've got quite a big repertoire of stuff. We must have, I suppose, roughly two and a quarter, two and a half hours of stuff. So we often play for that long anyway. Yeah. You know? And on, on those nights, we'd played the set out. It's like, hey, let's do something kind of, you know, let's do something fresh, you know, right in the moment, you know. So, yeah, it's not not really an issue, you know. We, we, we There's two or three different numbers we might start with. Funny enough, because we we haven't had a major overhaul of it for since we started this version of Invaders of the Heart, um, I've got to get my head around uh, introducing one or two new things to it, but the into the set. But the thing is, the set's developed and developed, you know, the band so imaginative that a lot of this is developed a life of its own a lot of the stuff you know so it's developing all the time you know we do a, a cover we do a cover version of get carter the theme tune to get carter the harold budge uh, the roy bud yes and um that just takes a life of its own all different kinds of arrangements and rhythms that that come in you know do you so I was just going to say, do you find, because you, you know, you're obviously really sparking with your creativity, is a lot of that to do with getting yourself cleaned up during the sort of that, age, you know, hitting a bit of a rock Yeah, bottom? absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, it was a second chance at life again. I would have I would have been dead much, much, much sooner rather than later. I was in a poor, bad way, men- mentally, physically and spiritually. You know, I was bankrupt, as they say, you know, those three areas. Um and then you hear all this thing over the years. Oh, really, you know, really crap people, you know, they need to be on heroin or they need to be on coke or to make it. In. It's, it's such bullshit. It really is. It's such crap, you know. And, uh, you know, for me, the music's the trip, really, you know, and I don't need anything to it. That's, that's the consciousness expander for me, you know. And, uh, yeah, very much because of sobriety and sobriety, I suppose some people would read that as being quite dull. It actually just gets rid of the bullshit and it takes away a vowel, you know, that your eyes are no longer vowed. It actually, I want to be very incredibly sensitive. I don't want to um, subdue senses in any way or go through what you call intoxication, but it's another, it's another blockage really. You know, it's another, it's another cloak over things. 
you know, I want to be incredibly alive and sensitive. I want all the gates open in the right way when I'm making music, you know. And it's interesting because I remember sort of once going to see and that's, and that's And that's what it's good to have some, you know, being not bad Nick. You know, you don't have to be a, some muscle man or something, you know, or this horrible thing a lot of aging rock stars have where they just drink fucking carrot juice, they have personal trainer and this. It's just this narcissistic looking as good as... And they looked a bit dried out anyway. But it's just about being kind of balanced and having some physical health as well. You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I always remember someone saying you are the average of the five people you hang out with, which was quite a sobering moment because you think, oh, right. That's... Okay, that's actually... I've never heard that. It's a very... It's, that's pretty much... Know a man by the company he keeps. Yes. And yeah. when, when they say, you know, you're the average of the five people you see most of the time, you want to feel like, oh, I'm really pleased with that, not like, oh, my God, but I can't bear them. <laughs> So it's yeah, kind yeah. of interesting, isn't it? You know that your band, you know, that obviously you and your band have got this great relationship and kind of communication. I'm not saying they're the five people you hang out with, but I'm just saying that obviously it, 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 not, no one's pulling anybody down or bringing issues to the sort of the stage that make you think, "God, this is just going nowhere fast," and it's not going to, it's not going to end well. Yeah, and and sometimes you know you have the tricky situation where you're hanging out with people. It's not even a drug issue necessarily or drinking. You just hang time with Pete got people in your life who are so negative and so angry. I know it's a bit of a corny one, you know, you get, you know, it's very colourful. Hey, man, I, you know, I get somebody who's just so negative around me, you know, I can't bear it. And you think, well, what about your own fucking shit, you know? But anyway, you know, because it's as within, so without, you know. But so there are times where you, 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 you know, and I find some painful people sometimes, they're difficult, you know, but they, it's funny when you kind of open and you're doing the right thing, they remove themselves, you know? So yes. it's always kind of changing. But, yeah, know, know a man by the company he keeps. And you have to be careful who you hang out with because nature abhors a vacuum. And if they're there, they're taking up space. If they weren't there, some, they're blocking up that space someone else could come in. Yes. You know, and this take. true. so true, yeah, actually. No. Yeah. Yeah. And and just lastly, I mean, obviously, you know, when when you you know you do you know as we we obviously are because we're having this conversation, but kind of um, able to sort of navigate these kind of tricky waters that are life. And does it feel quite odd when people start sort of like, oh my god, so and so has just passed away? Because obviously, a lot of you're starting to you know hear from people that you've you've obviously worked with as well and that must feel quite strange you know you don't when you're in your 20s you know you don't have that kind of thought you know one's just in a slightly self-obsessed way but then as you get older you think my god we used to work together and now they've passed away and, and stuff like that i just wonder how that starts to affect you well i mean that well that we all suffer from this illusion that we're permanent and although somebody might say you know you're going to die one day you could say that to me now and I, I, I say, yeah, I know, of course. But deep down, I'm not facing that, you know? Um, and some some babies die on, within an hour of being born, you know? So some people die incredibly young and it seems very cruel, you know, and all that. And it is, it's cruel, you know? Like life existence can be cruel until a lot of suffering, you know? That it's not it's not just an age thing that we should be looking at impermanence is what I'm trying to say. You know, um, you know, our life, all our lives, our lives are very, very fragile, a lot more fragile than we think. And I think, especially in the West, we're very spoiled. You know, my generation, 
um, who tend to be the Brexit generation, actually, you know, the 60-somethings. The 90-somethings, apparently not, the ones who actually saw the war. All the ones who saw war films and were brought up with all the stories seem to be the pro-Brexiteers. And we're actually very fortunate, you know. That's why one of the reasons I get quite cross with them, you know. We were very fortunate, by and large, you know. We had a good welfare system. We were educated by the state. It's an unfair system. It's a system of, of educational apartheid. If you have educational apartheid, that means you've got apartheid, actually. You know, yet again, that's one of the issues with Brexit, this fucking subclass who were labour and then got lost. But anyway, we, we were very spoilt. We had good health care and, um, you know, life expectancy has grown and grown and that helps to nullify this thing of how impermanent actually life is. I think we're now coming into a period where life expectancy is starting to fall. For yes. poor people again and um you know actually impermanence should underpin every it does for me i mean i religiously follow that you know i try to you know the first the, the first thoughts is i've got a precious human life not only am i alive i'm actually one of i'm a human being i could be any actually my way of thinking could be any other sentient being i'm a human being that's incredible and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm compassmentous. I've actually got the chance to be spiritual and to ponder things and to, and to kind of do the things I want to do. That's incredibly fortunate compared to most people in the world. Number two, it's impermanent, and that means death. I'm going to die. So better not piss about. Better show some, some not panic, but just some urgency and get things done. And thirdly, you know, our actions virtuous actions produce virtuous results you know you're going to die don't don't leave a bad taste behind you don't leave shit there so so be nice now you know if you can don't be a fucking wanker don't be a cunt don't be a shit you know be nice with people if you can you know have a testing that is you know yes. and um you know that's the, i try try and literally try to aspire to have those thoughts there's three of the four thoughts one has you know every on, on a daily basis i try you know, it's an impermanence and death. So when it comes, of course, it's always a bit of a shock. It's always sad, but it's coming to us all. Yes. You know, and, and we should we uh, you should be thinking this way in your twenties, really. You know, if only we did that. <laughs> I think wise. I think wise. There are wise beings, and there are some wise people about who do who have sense. I think you'll often find, say, younger men. Imagine what the that generation who were in the First World War, then the Second World War, but especially the First World War. Imagine the ones that survived, how they felt. Yes. They would have seen young bodies torn apart by bombs. And, you know, um, yet again, of course, the same kind of people howling for that war and being patriotic are the same kind of idiots calling for Brexit and, you know, and, uh, and you know, You've got the, the 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 hardcore right, the the, the EU as a, uh, a socialist. Uh, it's a at heart, it's a socialist evil empire. Into the left wing is the EU as a federalist conspiracy. You know, it's it lies somewhere in the middle, of course, and it's not perfect. But anyway, that's yes. that's that's a bugbear of mine at the moment. Is for a lot of people the stupidity that we're the energy that we're expending on that. Meanwhile. Life expectancy is dropping anyway. That's not the EU's fault, you know. And um, and there are, then we, our society is bedeviled with a number of serious problems. 
uh, none of which I can see are directly related to the EU, but there you go. No, but because just lastly, because a couple of people I spoke to, a member from the Godfathers and also Fish from Marillion, and, uh, but it was just kind of like uh, looking at their career because a lot of it depends on playing through Europe and the importance of especially that mar- the market, that's a bit of a dirty word, but, you know, the German audience, the just going across Europe and, and keeping the band going, thinking... We have no idea, seriously, no idea. You know, streaming seemed bad, but this is potentially going to shoot us completely in the head. Oh, it's completely ridiculous. I'm old enough to remember what it was like before we had the regulations we do now with freedom of movement and trade. That, you know, you used to have to stop at every border in Europe at four in the morning. You might get unlucky and they'd want to look at every bloody serial number on every amp that you were travelling with. You know, yeah. and that wasn't just for that was even when you hired the equipment in Holland and drove in. You had to do that. It was awful, you know. So it's fantastic. You know, here you are. You're an island opposite a continent that you can trade freely with. Isn't that wonderful? And, you know, I want my kids to be able to uh, travel through Europe if necessary. We are European, really. We're not really you know, we're not, we're not, we're not on another continent. We, we're on the continent of Europe. You can't argue that really we're, you know, we're, we're Antipodean or something, you know, or we we really belong in the Southern Hemisphere or something because we don't, you know. Yes. We're, we're in bloody Europe. They like it or not. That's that's, you know. And if you're going to trade with, you know, bringing stuff on boats all the way from New Zealand or wherever, so it's it adds cost. It's you know, you want the easiest trading terms with the partners near to you, really. So yes. I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't happen. I think it's, and and don't get me wrong, the EU's far from perfect. If you, they, they're business, it's business, and they're not mucking about, and they're pretty brutal. And if you're going to leave, you better really get your shit together, and actually make things. Um, you know, be able to trade and have stuff you can sell the world. If you're going to leave and you better leave and you better plan it very carefully, you know, um, that's what you better do. But, of course, the EU didn't destroy our, our, our manufacturing base. That you did. Mm. So, uh, you know, and there's an argument. I know some people might say that, well, it was going to change anybody. Hey, you know, other industrial nations went for change, did what they had to do, reinvested and continued to make things. We're not we're not known for our white goods, are we, anymore? Our motorcycles, you know. No. We don't make anything. We haven't got much to trade, I'm afraid. We're service based and most of our stuff as far as I understand, uh, is is to do with Europe. So yet again, you know, these are terrible times we're in and you know, it could be very we don't I don't do much stuff in Europe now, to be honest, you know. Um, maybe it'll come back again. So it's not like I'm not that. It, it won't, it, I don't think it affect me that badly as it stands. Um, you know, we go there once a year at the moment into Europe to do a show. I'd say once or twice a year. So at the moment, it's not terrible. But even that, you don't want the grief of it. You know, um, of having to kind of pay withholding tax and all that in the way you do in America. You know, and actually, a lot of the law, the laws it, it got a bit shaky for a time dealing with the EU. It's a bit of a pain. because you did get taxed at source a bit and this, that and the other, but um, they had a thing where, you know, the musicians had to get a basic rate of pay that was fairly decent, you know, and a lot of their stuff's quite sensible. So even that, they governed. I I remember it wasn't perfect, but they changed it. And in the end, you know, it was quite fair and workable, 
you know. Yes. But anyway, yeah, that's how it, how it goes, you know. So it's uh, we're, we're it's a crazy time of history. It is a crazy time. We're going to look back at this period and think, wow. It might be a while, though. You know, it might really be, um, you know, it, it, it might be a while because I think even if we – lots of damage has already been done. I think if we remain, the economy will boost and I think people will just go about. I think, you know, I think people will, will be positive about that. I think the issue is we haven't got any middle ground politicians. The, the centre's missing. The centre's lost. So you have ideologues on both sides now, you know, um, and they're not, they don't have the countries or the community's interest at heart, you know. You've got like the hard left and the hard right. These boring, these boring old tossers to the right of the uh, of the conservatives who are very much out of step with what most people's views nowadays society has developed and they're, they're a ridiculous bunch of people and, and not particularly pleasant and I'm afraid you've got similar very angry kind of people built around the cult of Jeremy Corbyn who's probably the most ineffectual Labour leader I've ever seen and we've had a few you know <laughs> and um, you know but of course these if you dare to criticise Jeremy you know his momentum People come out of the woodwork and want to flay you alive, flay you alive for not realizing Jeremy's the Messiah. He's a wonderful man, you know. Actually, just a very ineffectual kind of guy, really. And that is going to be the last part of the interview that I had with Joe Wobble. We do go on a bit longer, but I think we'll call it a day there. But anyway, a big thank you again to Joe Wobble for giving me the time for that interview, and thank you for listening. If you still are, you might have just nodded off. I don't know. Anyway, I enjoyed it, and that's the main thing. I'm going to leave you with another song from Joe Wobble's massive back catalogue. This is titled My Heart's Burning that features PJ Higgins from the album Inspiration. Have a great week. Tune in next week. I'll have lots more excitement and another special guest. I wonder who it will be.
He's gone.